Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of our conversation about the minimum wage with senior fellow from the Cato Institute, Walter Olson. Coming up, we re-engage with my question as to which side trumps during conflicts between the federal minimum wage law and the state minimum wage law. After that, we discuss possible paths for Congress to pass minimum wage legislation, as well as whether or not that's a good idea. We now return to the episode already in progress. You know, I want to get into that, some of those policy uh, discussions a little bit, but I want to, I want to close things out just a little bit more on sort of the, uh, the legality side of this. And so, you know, to the degree that there is a discrepancy between the federal minimum wage and the state minimum wage, which one prevails? You're always obliged to pay the higher of the two if, if a job is covered by both. And that means most of the time that the state minimum wage is the one that uh, is going to bind, the one that is going to be the bigger compliance issue. One of the things that I, I learned in some of the the research that I definitely want to come back to and uh, you know research a little bit more, but this idea of the minimum wage, a bill towards increasing the minimum wage, separate and apart from the COVID relief bill, uh, going through a reconciliation process in Congress. So in theory, they're trying to make this argument that the minimum wage has something to do with the budgetary notions. And because of that, it would go through a reconcile process in, in Congress. And why that's relevant is that in the COVID bill, which was not a budgetary item uh, per se. The Senate did not have a lot of support for the minimum wage aspect that we're able to push back because you need 60 votes to push something through the Senate after it passes the House. But under a reconciliation process, you can get by on a simple majority if it's a budgetary item. So how are they making that uh, argument, Walter? How are they trying to bring budgetary uh, considerations into a minimum wage? I will confess right off the bat that the reconciliation rules are only slightly less mysterious to me than the history of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> um, I, it, it, it's a, a relatively new reason for bills of this high profile to stand or fall. And of course, I do see the logic that budget methods should be reserved, uh, budget methods which submerge the rights of the minority, which otherwise would have the power to draw things out, offer more amendments, filibuster and the rest of it. If you are bypassing all of that on the excuse that, uh, look, we have to pass certain types of fiscal bills, we can't allow them to be stalled forever, then the logic does go along with that, that you can't use it for just anything. You, you, know, you can't reach out to things that are too far removed from, from budgetary processes. At the same time, when the Senate parliamentarian came out with her opinion that this was not allowed, I just took it on faith because I, as I say, it, it's like checking the rules of succession of the monarchy in, in Austria-Hungary. She could be right, she could be wrong. I, I took that part on faith. But I do see the logic there that they can't allow just anything to be done through that process. Nonetheless, as you said earlier in our talk, they will be back and there's every reason to believe that whether it be because there are other must-pass bills, or simply because uh, this issue has staying power. It's really been a major, major campaign theme for the Democratic Party in particular. In principle, they have some Republicans willing to go along with some of it in principle, and they can be expected to come back even if not in the very short term. 
Yep. Sounds like smoke and mirrors to me too, Walter. <laughs> so, you know, just one of those things that, uh, you know, gets batted back and forth up in Washington, D.C. All right. Well, I want to I want to turn our uh, scopes on the policy considerations here. And so admittedly, you know, I have a financial background and, and uh, you know, study economics in my, my business school training, uh, both at the undergraduate level and at uh, the graduate school level. You know, I've I've helped people manage their businesses. I've run my own business. And, you know, that's, that's where I come from on this. And to me, I've never been a big believer believer in the minimum wage, you know, increasing it and then having this long-term standing good. And, and the reason I feel that way is because the minimum wage to me represents the entry-level worker. So this is where, you know, where careers go to start. And that same worker, the very next year, is going to be much better at their job. They provide more value. And if everything's going proper, that's because they provide more value, because they're doing more into the system for their business, creating more value for their position, you know, it justifies the increase in wage. And so these artificial increases in the minimum wage, in my opinion, lead to inflation. And so I think and to be fair, here's the pro is that for a short period of time, you know, it uh, it gives relief to those those workers kind of on the lower end of the spectrum because it brings up their wages. But in the long term, as time goes on, it's not a very long term in my observation, that increase they get gets absorbed in the higher cost of living because businesses, you know, their two big, biggest expenses are personnel and plant, you know, so people costing the most your employees. That's one of the expenses right there. Someone's getting paid more without actually putting the new value in. Same worker, but you're paying them in this case twice, more than twice as much if we go from $7.25 to a $15 an hour, dollar an hour increase with the new minimum wage. And so I think that that just gets passed along to the consumers and then all of a sudden everything costs more. And the workers, of course, that aren't minimum wage employees, their cost of living goes up, their buying power buys less. And so you just raise the cost of living for them. So I think it just, I think I agree with the notion of helping those uh, those workers that are kind of on the lower end of the pay, uh, the payment spectrum. But I think the raising the minimum wage is the wrong tool to get them there. And so I hand it to you uh, for your uh, for your commentary there. How, how do you feel about that? It just as a general, I guess, uh, fiscal policy to help workers. Well, let me approach it from the standpoint of two additional angles. One is how does business adjust or react when these numbers go up and how does that affect workers? There is a large economic literature, and of course, everyone has their favorite studies. There have been a relatively few studies finding no discernible impact on the employment in a particular area, like New Jersey fast food restaurants, I think was the most famous uh, study. And then there have been a larger number of ones that do find a negative effect. And so people pick their favorite studies. I myself am persuaded that there is probably some effect on many markets in reducing the amount of employment offered, uh, reducing particularly hours offered, because it will often happen that the consequences, and I talked about the many different ways in which employers adjust, but for example, they may stop offering overtime. And they may, if you've got to hire someone at $15 instead of $8, well, you, you will have more people applying for it than before. And you might mechanize, people talk a lot about mechanization, but let's assume you've still got the one job. You can- And by mechanization, you're talking about automations. I've seen this in McDonald's right, yeah, where- Put, put, put it, putting in uh, mechanical dishwashers at a restaurant used to be a classic example. We've moved on to many other things. But mechanization has an obvious relationship to dispensing with labor costs. But but let's get back to the, the situation where the job can't be mechanized. Uh, one thing that happens is that you've 
probably got more people applying for the job uh, because it's paying twice as much. And you can hold out for, oh, you know, gee, we can say minimum two years experience and actually fill the jobs on that basis. Whereas the lower one, who were not getting the applications from those with two years experience who had many better opportunities. And so you had to reach out to the most marginal workers. So one thing that happens is that jobs tend to be filled by people who've been at them longer in a system with a higher minimum wage. And is this good or bad? Well, again, it it's a classic aspect of unionization, but also of labor law, even aside from unionization, that it tilts the workplace toward veterans who stick around and get the benefits of seniority. And it becomes harder to be the newcomer getting a first foothold at those places. So So one thing that happens is that employers tilt toward people who have experience in the job. Second thing they do is they trim fringe benefits. And this can be something as small as, uh, you know, free meals at restaurants. It can be something as intangible, but but I think actually the probably the most important single area in which they trim fringe benefits is that studies have found that they will often cut back uh, the amount of on-the-job training for the entry-level jobs. And part of it is, of course, if you're hiring someone with two years of experience, you're not going to be giving them as much on-the-job training. But even beyond that, it's more of a sink or swim thing. If it's not easy to refill a job, the the manager is more likely to work with you, explain what you're doing wrong, and help you become a worker who is not in danger of being fired. If you can fill up the thing easily with someone who's got two years experience, then uh, you know don't don't spend the time developing the employees, and you can save on you know, a lot of what managers actually spend their time on. So less managerial input, less human capital development by working with the newest employees, and of course where there are other fringes to trim. Uh, uh, you know, they may not trim health insurance, although in some cases, if they don't have to offer it at all, then you know, it may make the difference between uh, some plan and, and no plan. It, it certainly is an obvious place to look for making up if, if you've got to, to, to greatly increase the wage level. What they don't typically do is simply take it out of shareholder wealth. I mean, that, that's kind of the naive view of redistribution. And this is my second point, uh, which, which I want to get into, is who gets money redistributed? Because it's not nearly as obvious as it may seem. As I say, the naive view is that wages double, shareholders um, see that amount of money siphoned out of their the value of their investment, shareholders cry for a day and then realize there's nothing they can do about it. That's not the way it works. The, uh, these are competitive markets. And if they are not adjusting labor costs in various other ways, then they are sometimes adjusting the amount of investment that shareholders are willing to do. If, if you are turning a, a profitable business proposition on profitable. You mentioned that prices can go up. That certainly is a likely result in consumer services and products that depend closely on low paid labor. Yeah, that's certainly been my observation every time I've seen one of these come in as the prices go up and then all of a sudden you're back in the same boat. Prices go up, and so share, shareholders make out okay. You know, the, the return to capital isn't actually impaired over the long run. You know, cap, capital winds up getting its percentage either way, and and the the pressure has to come out somewhere else. Maybe higher prices for consumers, maybe a loss of fringe benefits. But let me probe a little bit further on redistribution because something you hinted at: the minimum wage is not actually very good at targeting its benefits at the poorest and neediest members of society, and something that uh, most people really refuse to believe the first time you tell them is that most poor people are not at minimum wage jobs and most people 
earning minimum wage are not in poor families. And again, it, it, it sounds just unbelievable. But when you think about it, large numbers of minimum wage earners are either at the beginning of their careers in households that are well above the poverty level because one or both parents are making money, or else they are sometimes at the other end, they are retirees keeping their foot in the labor market, and they are getting social security or something else that keeps them from being poor. So strange but true, most of the wage increases are not going to poor households. Now, you turn around and say, well, what, where are poor households if they're not all getting minimum wage? Well, the answer is some of them are completely unemployed. Some of them have access to jobs that pay more than the minimum wage, but unfortunately, not access to 40 hours of work at them. They might have access to a few hours a week. But the issue is not that the hourly rate is too low, as, as that they are not getting enough hours to pull them out of poverty. Many others are in the informal economy, which is its own set of issues, but of course is not reached if, or else it wouldn't be the informal economy but by these issues. So, uh, And then you've got small business people and many others who are not really making a go out of their attempts to sell their products. So that brings us to the question of what would a more targeted and more efficient anti-poverty program look like? Because it probably wouldn't look like the minimum wage. So most of the redistribution going on is not going to the, the poorest families and uh, leaves the question of whether there's a better way to address poverty. That's a great lead into my last question. So if you were king for a day, you know, Walter, what would you do? So what I would do is I would probably try to incentivize, uh, you know, different places of employment to, to uh, you know, educate their, uh, their, their employees to advance into higher positions. And there's a lot of great companies out there that do that. They want, to, they want to make that investment internally because they've already kind of proven a commodity. They have someone they like working with and trust, and they've invested in them over time, and they'd like to see them advance to a bigger position, work with a known commodity. And I think, you know, maybe, maybe there's some tax incentives there. You know, if you're, if you're helping or paying for one of your employees to be educated, maybe there's some kind of benefit there. And in that case, you know, you're educating this, this, um, this employee to make a bigger production. So you're going to increase their wages without taking away the value. You're not simply just pumping more money into the same number of uh, products and services, which creates inflation. What you're doing is you're, you're showing somebody how to make a bigger contribution to that market with a bigger skill set. That's how I would do it. I probably handle it like that. And there's also, you know, there's a lot of free education out there in terms of like, you know, high school, you know, in the country, it's a free high school education. There's a lot of ways to to borrow money, to get vocational training, but also to, you know, get uh, college and, and uh, postgraduate education as well. You know, those are other ways to do it. But that, that's where I'd focus. I just think, from my opinion, I think the minimum wage increase is just a faulty tool. But I leave it to you. You're king for a day, Walter. We've got a minute or less. How would you improve things? Well, if I were king for a day, I'd abdicate. But um, the uh, <laughs> leaving aside that answer, you haven't mentioned something that I think is potentially the first place to look. The earned income tax credit is, uh, although it's run through the income tax system, it operates effectively for federal wage supplementation of low wage workers. It operates to take the burden off the employment system of solving poverty issues for many people with low productivity. And if it's designed correctly, it will not involve as many disincentives and, and traps where uh, being offered a pay raise might make you worse off. I and mean, that, that is a continual problem with government transfer programs. But uh, again, expecting to load the cost of a paternalistic system on employers that are in low productivity businesses just doesn't make that much sense. 
when you drive up the cost of that kind of service, it's often the poor who wind up paying more for those services. And again, look to incomes directly. Don't look to the employment relationship uh, so much in trying to end poverty. Well, Walter, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you, Lawrence. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please recommend the show to a friend because word of mouth matters. And once again, thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A because they got hustle. Thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Cluddy. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) Thank you.